Hi, I'm Mark Weston Janis. Uh, I'm a professor of law um, and have taught both in the United States and in England. Um, I want to share with you um, some of my work this morning that I've done about uh, some of the um, origins of international law in the United States. Just a couple of prefatory comments. I think we're all aware that international law is the creature of all nations and it doesn't belong to any one state. It doesn't belong to any one political or religious or economic tradition. It's shared by all of us. And each of our cultures has made a contribution to international law, which is very important. And in looking today at the contributions of Americans uh, at a certain period of time and of a certain religious persuasion, um, I'm just looking at a small part of the picture. Um, it's an important part of the picture, of course, but every part of the picture is important. And I just want folks to understand a little bit about how Americans over time have participated in the development of international law and its institutions. My talk today is about Protestants' progress and peace, the 19th century movement for an international court in Congress, early drafts of today's international court and the United Nations. International courts have become an ordinary, if sometimes maligned, feature of modern international law and politics. The Permanent Court of Arbitration was a creature of the first peace conference at The Hague in 1899. The Permanent Court of International Justice issued along with the League of Nations shortly after the 1919 Versailles Conference. The International Court of Justice as part of the United Nations as fashioned at San Francisco in 1945. These three international tribunals, a lineage known collectively as the International Court or the World Court, along with the many regional and specialized international courts created since 1945, to mention only a few, the European Court of Human Rights, the European Court of Justice, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, the Dispute Settlement System of the World Trade Organization, the International Criminal Court, are nowadays so much the erudite province of lawyers and judges that it is easy to suppose that lawyers were principally responsible for their creation. However, to a surprising extent, the international courts of today are the offspring of 19th century American utopians, religious enthusiasts who are by and large untrained in the law. These early proponents of an international court were active in the United States between the War of 1812 and the American Civil War, beginning in 1860. This half century was the period when the particulars of what became the World Court took on concrete form and when agitation for such a court became quite strong in America. The ideas and enthusiasm that were generated then for an international court and organization were therefore already in place when between 1865 and 1945 the concept of an international court and organization captured the imagination of many Americans, among those those who promoted and helped institute the three successive forms of the international court in 1899, 1919, and 1945. The intellectual and moral foundations for international adjudication had been laid long before the emergence of the American Republic. Ideas about the fundamental unity of all people and about a peaceful form of international organization circulated at least as early classical Greece more than 2,000 years ago. Zeno, the founder of Stoic philosophy, foresaw in his Republic 
a world which would no longer be composed of separate states, but one great city under one divine law, where all were citizens and members one of another, bound together not by human laws, but by their own willing consent. In Roman times, the empress Marcus Aurelius followed Stoicism to formulate ideals of universal law and a world community. More immediately, America's 19th century peaceful visions for the world's people were rooted in European political philosophy of the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. Desiderus Erasmus, Thomas Moore, the Duke de Sully, Hugo Grotius, William Penn, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Immanuel Kant, and Jeremy Bentham all fashioned utopian schemes involving international law and organization. In 1713, the Abbe de Saint-Pierre, upset by the incessant wars of Louis XIV, published the first parts of A Plan for Perpetual Peace in Europe. Often revised and expanded, Saint-Pierre's plan proposed a perpetual grand alliance among European sovereigns, a prohibition of foreign and civil wars, a reduction of armaments, the mediation of international disputes by a general assembly, and the establishment of a court of arbitration whose judgments would be enforced by communal force of arms. Alongside philosophical principle was religious enthusiasm. America shared with Europe traditions of religious pacifism brought to the new land from England, Germany, Holland, Russia, and indeed from wherever pacifists migrated. George Fox, the founder of the Society of Friends, refused in 1647 to take up arms in the English Civil War. Fox's pacifism, rooted in a conviction of the fundamental contradiction between the spirit of Christ and the spirit of war, provided a nucleus of anti-war sentiment wherever Quakers were to be found. <clears throat> Whatever its antecedents, the peace movement and its aspirations for international courts became truly widespread and influential only in the 19th century. And nowhere except perhaps in Britain was the peace movement more vigorous than in America, where its popularity owed much to religious fervor. Indeed, the American peace movement is usually dated to the early years of the 19th century, when pacifism began to spread from a few sects like the Quakers to many Protestant denominations, a time, furthermore, when religious pacifism was reinforced by emerging concepts of internationalism. Some of the earliest texts of the 19th century American peace movement, crucially influential for the future of international courts, were penned by David Lowe Dodge, a Connecticut Presbyterian who became a New York merchant and whose self-study led him to pacifism. In 1809, Dodge wrote a much heralded condemnation of war, the mediator's kingdom, not of this world, but spiritual, heavenly, and divine. Dodge marshaled economic, political, and humanitarian rationales alongside religious objections to prove that war was wrong and unlawful. Dodge was a New Englander. This was no coincidence. The 19th century pacifist movement was always stronger in New England than elsewhere in the United States. The pacifism of many New Englanders, especially the conservative Federalists, was reinforced, if not triggered, by the War of 1812 between Britain and the United States. The interruption of New England's European commerce and the British attacks on the New England coast led many New Englanders to condemn all wars, or at least all aggressive wars. At the abortive, possibly secessionist, Hartford Convention between December 1814 and January 1815, Delegates from Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, and Vermont boldly resolved that rarely can the state of this country call for or justify offensive war. 
the delegates demanded a constitutional amendment requiring that Congress shall not make or declare war or authorize acts of hostility against any foreign nation without the concurrence of two-thirds of both houses, except such acts of hostility be in defense of the territories of the United States when actually invaded. <coughs> it should not be surprising, then, that Dodge's most influential book was published in 1814 in the heat of the War of 1812. His war, inconsistent with the religion of Jesus Christ, showed seven reasons why war was inhuman, eight why it was unwise, and eleven why it was criminal. Dodge concluded with this call to action. All who earnestly desire and look for the millennial glory of the church should consider that it could never arrive until the spirit and practice of war are abolished. All who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity cannot but ardently desire that wars may cease in the ends of the earth and that mankind should embrace each other as brethren. If so, is it not their individual duty to do all in their power to promote so benevolent an object? Ought not every individual Christian to conduct in such a manner that if every other person imitated his example, it would be best for the whole? If so, would they not immediately renounce everything that leads to wars and fighting and embrace everything which would promote that glorious reign of righteousness and peace for which they earnestly hope, long, and pray? The work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. Not long after Dodge's pacifist work came the efforts of Noah Worcester, a New Hampshire-born Unitarian minister in Massachusetts. Worcester was a veteran of the American Revolutionary War who came only gradually to an anti-war position. It was the War of 1812, Worcester wrote, which was the occasion of perfecting the revolution in his mind in regard to the lawfulness of war. In 1814, the same year of Dodge's key essay, Worcester published a solemn review of the custom of war, which was to become a classic, probably the most widely distributed of all peace literature. Worcester later explained that, I became thoroughly convinced that war is the effect of delusion, totally repugnant to the Christian religion, and wholly unnecessary except as it becomes necessary from delusion and the basis passions of human nature. That, when it is waged for a redress of wrongs, its tendency is to so multiply wrongs a hundredfold, and that in principle, the best we can make of it is doing evil, that good may come. Worcester asked, cannot the state of society and the views of civilized men be so changed as to abolish so barbarous a custom and render wars unnecessary and avoidable? Worcester, like many 19th century Americans, believed progress resulted from a mixture of human effort and divine purpose. He used the abolition of the slave trade as an example. Worcester rejected the notion that God meant man to fight and that war is a good way of sending off bad men. In dealing with the contention that no substitute for war can be devised, which will ensure to a nation a redress of wrongs, Worcester introduced the idea of an international court, albeit without the detail that would follow in later works. Here's what he wrote. But if the eyes of the people can be opened in regard to the evils and delusions of war, would it not be easy to form a confederacy of nations and organize a high court of equity to decide national controversies? Why might not such a court be composed of some of the most eminent characters from each nation and a compliance with the decisions of the court be made a point of national honor to prevent the effusion of blood and to preserve the blessings of peace? Can any considerate person say that the probability of obtaining right in such a course would be any less than an appeal to arms? Worcester went on to applaud the peaceful tradition of the Quakers and Shakers and to attack the depravity occasioned by wars upon armies and general populations 
and to show how war was contrary to the spirit and the teaching of Christianity. Worcester envisioned peace societies spreading to every nation and serving as the vehicle for educating public opinion about the horrors of war. He wrote, let lawyers, politicians, and divines, and men of every class who can write or speak, consecrate their talents to the diffusion of life, love, and peace. When the War of 1812 came to a close in the early months of 1815, the New England Federalists were now seen as unpatriotic, and they watched their party slide into political oblivion. But the anti-war sentiment of Dodge and Worcester persisted. So did the idea of peace societies. No sooner was the war against England over in 1815 than Dodge in New York, Worcester in Massachusetts, and two Quakers in Ohio independently founded the world's first peace societies. More state peace societies followed in New England, in Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Rhode Island, and Connecticut, and further afield in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Georgia. These post-war of 1812 peace societies were largely middle class. Dodge's New, England, New York Peace Society was eminently respectable, decidedly bourgeois, with its Wall Street brokers, merchants and businessmen, clergy and philanthropic gentlemen. Worcester's Massachusetts Peace Society was in its membership even more august than New York, for it included, in addition to an opposing array of ministers of religion and substantial Boston merchants, the names of the governor, the lieutenant governor, two respectable judges, the president and several professors of Harvard University. In terms of doctrine, the New York Society was more absolutist, promoting a thorough sort of Christian non-resistant pacifism. Massachusetts, however, influenced by Worcester's gradualism, was more diverse and forgiving of the use of force. The Massachusetts Peace Society sought to influence public and governmental opinion by preaching against the immorality, waste, and illiteracy of war. More than New York, Massachusetts was interested in political alternatives to war. Worcester especially was keen to show that international law and arbitration could serve as reasonable and realistic substitutes for war as a means of the international settlement of disputes. As the peace society spread throughout the United States in the 1820s and 1830s, it was the Massachusetts gradualist model that proved to be more influential. Membership ranged from radical pacifists to conservative peace enthusiasts. Worcester founded and until 1828 edited the popular journal Friend of Peace, and he became, more than Dodge, the more important figure. Devout and usually prosperous churchmen from the Unitarians, Presbyterian, Congregationalists, Baptists, and Methodists filled peace society ranks. Episcopalians, Roman Catholics, and curiously Quakers were not so active. The reluctance of friends to join may well have been due to their disappointment that Worcester's groups refused to condemn all wars. Already, the peace groups were ideologically split. One of the fundamentally divisive issues was whether there was any obligation to promote alternatives to war. For most of the Dodge-like and Quaker-like pacifists, a total renunciation of war was intrinsic. For Worcester and the gradualists, if the movement was to succeed, there needed to be substitutes for war, substitutes that might sometimes even include forceful sanctions. Worcester had already hinted at the potential for international arbitration. As the peace societies matured, Worcester's hint was heard, at least in the United States, and more elaborate schemes for international adjudication were proposed. A key American figure in the elaboration of an international adjudicatory model was William Ladd. Born in New Hampshire and graduated in 1797 from Harvard, Ladd first followed the sea and then settled down in Maine on his family's prosperous farm. 
His conversion to the peace movement came in 1819, largely due to a reading of Worcester. Ladd made two important contributions to the American International Court and Congress movement. First, in 1828, Ladd consolidated the various state peace societies into a national federation, the American Peace Society, of which he served first as executive officer and then as president. Until his death in 1841, Ladd was the leading light of the peace societies, British as well as American. He was instrumental in the publication of the society's monthly journal, first called the Harbinger of Peace in 1828, later the Calumet in 1831, the American Advocate of Peace in 1835, and the Advocate of Peace when in 1837 the American Peace Society moved from Hartford, Connecticut to Boston, Massachusetts. Second in importance, in 1840, Ladd published his Essay on a Congress of Nations. Along with Worcester's solemn review, Ladd's essay was to be remembered. In 1872, Elihu Burritt characterized Ladd as the Apostle of Peace and termed his essay's High Court of Nations the noblest and loftiest bar that could be established on earth. In 1916, James Brown Scott called Ladd's essay his abiding title to fame. And in 1935, in a, in a dispassionate and scientific study, a European, Georg Schwarzenberger, concluded that there was a direct line in the history of ideas about international organization from Ladd to the achievements of Geneva and the Alabama arbitration, and even further to the foundations of his equity tribunal to a real League of Nations. It is only fair, however, to say that to some extent, Ladd's essay was a consolidation of the efforts of others. Under his direction, the American Peace Society organized an essay competition on the theme, A Congress of Nations. About 40 essays vied for a award offered by two gentlemen of New York. Two award committees, illustriously composed of U.S. Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story, Attorney General William Wirt, South Carolina Senator John Calhoun, former President John Quincy Adams, New York Chancellor James Kent, and Massachusetts Senator Daniel Webster, were unable to decide who should win. It was finally decided to publish the five best essays, with Ladd adding a sixth. Ladd came, claimed originality only on the thought of separating his subject into two distinct parts, and here's what he said about it. First, there should be a Congress of ambassadors from all those civilized nations who should choose to send them for the purpose of settling the principles of international law by compact and agreement of the nature of a mutual treaty and also by devising and promoting plans for the preservation of peace and improving the condition of man. Second, there should be a court of nations composed of the most able lawyers in the world to arbitrate or judge such cases as should be brought before it by the mutual consent of two or more contending states. Thus, we divide entirely the diplomatic from the judicial function, which requires such different, not to say opposite, characters in the exercise of their functions. I consider the Congress as the legislature and the court as the judiciary and the government of nations leaving the functions of the executive with public opinion, the queen of the world. This division I have never seen in any essay or plan for a Congress or diet of independent nations, either ancient or modern, and I believe it will obviate all the objections which have been heretofore made to such a plan." End of quote. Ladd proposed that his new international organization be divided into legislative, judicial, and executive branches, a logical step to be taken by an American familiar with the comparable position provision for separation of powers in the U.S. Constitution. Such an analysis also reflected the widespread reemergence in 19th uh, century Europe and America 
of both treaty-making conferences and ad hoc international arbitral tribunals. A genuinely encouraging development, it had been stimulated by the Jay Treaty, the agreement concluded by the governments of the United States and the United Kingdom, as a means for resolving the many disputes still remaining after Britain's formal acknowledgement of American independence in 1783. Despite the arbitral progress of his times, Ladd still deserves to be reckoned a visionary. His proposed international court went much further than international arbitration had gone before. Ladd thought that, quote, the same moral laws which ought to govern individuals ought to govern nations, end quote. When wrongs were done to nations, he believed wars were to be avoided either by cultivating the spirit of peace and overlooking the injury, or two, by negotiation and compromise, or three, by mediation or arbitration and acceptance of the award. Even better, he wrote, would be a court. He says, as government is an ordinance of God necessary for the safety, happiness, and improvement of the human race, and as it is absolutely necessary for the peace of society that when the selfish passions of man come in conflict, the judgment of the case should not be left with the individuals concerned, but with some impartial tribunal. So it is equally necessary for the peace and happiness of mankind that when the selfish passions of nations come into conflict, the decision of the case should not be left with an individual nation concerned, but should be referred to some great tribunal that should give a verdict on the affairs of nations in the same manner that a civil court decides the disputes of individuals." End quote. Ladd recognized two difficulties with his plan. First of these is the one of a body of men to enact and promulgate laws for the government of nations. The other is the one of a political force to carry the decision of a court of nations into execution. The legislative problem Ladd proposed to solve with his Congress of Nations. The second he thought much more troublesome, but the trouble was less if we look into the condition of man in a state of civilization, where it will be found that when one man obeys the laws for fear of the sword of the magistrate, a hundred more obey them through fear of public opinion. So for a court of nations, though at the commencement of his system its success not be so great as desirable, yet as moral power is every day increasing, it will finally take the place of all wars between civilized nations, much in the same manner as a civil court has taken the place of the judicial combat. It is important for us to remember that in 1840, Ladd was writing his essay not only as an intellectual successor to 18th century drafters of utopian peace pans like Saint-Pierre, Kant, and Bentham, but also as an active member of a popular American peace movement, which had considerable influence, particularly between 1835 and 1853. Peace societies were numbered among, along with anti-slavery, temperance, and missionary societies as important 19th century forms, urged on Christian grounds and advocated with Christian slogans. Even before his essay appeared, Ladd and the peace societies were powerful enough to lobby the legislature of Massachusetts so successfully that in 1838, the Commonwealth enacted its resolves in relation to a Congress of Nations. Part of them read, Resolved that offensive war is incompatible with the true spirit of Christianity. Resolved that the great importance of the subject renders it the duty of all civilized communities to unite in the adoption of any practicable plan calculated to effect so noble an object as the abolition of war and the preservation of peace among the nations of the earth. Resolved that the institution of a Congress of Nation for the purpose of framing a code of international law and establishing a high court of arbitration for the settlement of controversies between nations is a scheme worthy of the careful attention and consideration of all enlightened governments.
By the 1840s, the American movement for the peaceful reign of international law and courts had already stepped from the individual speculation of Dodge and Worcester to the peace societies in New York, Massachusetts, and other states, and even further to William Ladd, the projects in his essay, and the nationwide American Peace Society. The logical next step for the American peace movement was agitation and organization for an international crusade for peace. The person more than any other who took that step was a learned blacksmith, Elihu Burrett. Burrett came to be known as the symbol of the international peace movement in the mid-19th century. In 1845, not guessing that the peace crusade would engage him for more than 30 years, Burrett recorded in his journal, quote, I am persuaded that it is reserved to crown the destiny of America, that she shall be the great peacemaker in the brotherhood of nations. And I think that I cannot better employ the talents and time God gave me than to devote a year or two to this cause, unquote. Before he became an advocate for world peace, Burrett was an already celebrated lecturer in England and America. He was a gifted linguist who spoke more than 50 languages. His linguistic achievements were all the more remarkable because Burrett had been born poor, the third of ten children of a New Britain, Connecticut family, who could provide their son with little formal schooling. Apprenticed at 16 to a blacksmith, Burrett began to study Latin and Greek in his spare time. By his early 20s, he had broadened his interest to French, Spanish, Italian, German, and Hebrew. In 1837, at the age of 27, Burrett set off on foot to Boston, hoping to sailor his way to distant parts to acquire more languages. But on the way, he stopped in Worcester, Massachusetts, where he found that the American Antiquarian Society there would lend him foreign grammars. He stayed in Worcester, working as a blacksmith, adding to his tongues and beginning to work as a translator. It was in Worcester in 1840, the same year as Ladd's essay, that Burrett was discovered by Massachusetts Governor Edward Everett, who publicized Burrett's achievement and introduced him to Longfellow the poet. Longfellow suggested that Burrett work at Harvard, but Burrett chose instead to take to the not unprofitable lecture series, where he extolled the potential and realities of self-culture and the self-made man. Burrett, like Dodge and Worcester before him, came to the idea of world peace by his own contemplations. Up until 1843, while still in Worcester, Burrett was more or less unaware of the active peace movement in nearby Hartford or Boston. Only preparing a lecture on the Earth's anatomy did he become persuaded that the interdependency of the different parts of the globe made an argument against war. He lectured on this topic at the Tremont Theater in Boston, and speaking to an audience that included some peace advocates, he was recruited to the cause of peace. Back in Worcester, Burrett inaugurated a weekly newspaper, The Christian Citizen, and later in Worcester and then in England, alongside the Quaker Edmund Fry, established the paper The Bond of Universal Brotherhood. Burrett threw his enthusiasm and not inconsiderable organizational talent into a peace movement that was taking on an international, or at least an Anglo-American, character. In 1841, the Boston Convention of the Friends of Peace resolved to call an International Peace Conference. That meeting, the first, inter sorry, the first universal peace con convention, was held in June 1843. The venue was London, where it was hoped delegates would attend from all over. There were 292 delegates from the United Kingdom, 26 from America, but only six from the continent of Europe. This was all too typical. Despite missionary work on the continent, the American and London peace societies were unable to foster any European peace societies before the 1860s, except for ones in France and Switzerland. The Anglo-American nature of the peace movement may explain why the Dutch scholar 
P.H. Koimans, perhaps looking too narrowly at continental Protestantism, insisted that Protestantism after the time of Grotius made little impact on the development of international law. A, si a similar continental predilection was expressed by another scholar who dismissed the peace societies and Federalist and pacifist movements with their strongest base within the Anglo-American world as, quote, incompatible with an attempt to conceptualize the post-Napoleonic system in terms of legal rules, unquote. One suspects with respect that some continental civil lawyers then as now have trouble with common law moralizing and are more comfortable drawing a black line between the science of law and the emotions of morality and religion. This is a line often and cheerfully crossed by Anglo-Americans. Whatever the cause, the first Universal Peace Conference in 1843 was indeed really more Anglo-American than Universal. Despite or because of its heavily British contingent, the conference took a strong stand against British imperialism. More contentiously, and it divided the British and American delegates, the conference debated the most practical means of obtaining the objects of the convention. A resolution was adopted, and I quote, that the convention thought, as the peace societies had from their origins, a Congress of Nations uh, to settle and perfect the code of international law, and a high court of nations to interpret and apply the law for the settlement of all national disputes, should be constantly kept in view by the friends of peace and urged upon governments as the best practical mode of settling peacefully and satisfactorily all international disputes. Surveying the scene in 1845 and 1846, and especially concerned about the possibility of a new war between Great Britain and the United States over the fate of the Oregon Territory, Elihu Burritt was convinced that it was necessary to supplement the existing state and national peace societies with an international peace organization. In 1846, Burritt left America for England. He expected to stay in Britain for four months, but he remained for four years. Early on, in July 1846, Burritt founded the League of Universal Brotherhood. Key to the League was a pledge by each member to, quote, a bond, promising to elevate man as a being as a brother, irrespective of his country, color, character or condition, unquote, and never to enlist in the armed forces or support any war. By the end of Burritt's stay in England in 1850, the League had come to number about 25,000 Americans, about 25,000 number of Britons, but despite much effort, only a few others, mostly German and Dutch. Burritt's most remarkable contributions were made as a propagandist, able to reach a broad public with his ideas about peace. His immediate objective in the late 1840s was to dampen the sparks of international conflict that could inflame countries into war. In speeches and pamphlets, newspapers, Burritt argued not only against the war in Oregon, but also against the Mexican-American War and the possibility of war between England and France. In August 1848, Elihu Burritt went to Paris to organize a new peace conference, but the July Revolution made the city an unhappy venue. Burt was much discouraged by the evidences of revolution all around him, and he was an early American upset by communism. Unable to hold his peace conference in Paris, Burt turned instead to Brussels, where his popular International Peace Congress opened in September 1848. Burt addressed the meeting on the need for a Congress and a Court of Nations, a project he acknowledged he had inherited from William Ladd. Paris made up for its revolution in 1848 by hosting, in 1849, what may have been the most stupendous of the whole series of international peace conferences. Victor Hugo delivered the inaugural address, and Hugo said, a day will come when the only battlefield will be the market open to commerce and the mine open to new ideas. A new day will come when bullets and bombshells will be replaced by votes, by the universal suffrage of nations, 
by the venerable arbitration of a great sovereign state, which will be to Europe what the parliament is to England, what the Diet is to Germany, what the Legislative Assembly is to France." Unquote. The 1845 Peace Conference welcomed more than 600 delegates, this time many from outside England and America. It marked the moment when the peace movement moved from its Anglo-American religious foundations to take on an international character. Third and Fourth Peace Conferences followed in Frankfurt in 1850 and in London in 1851. Burrett organized mass meetings in England and the continent and did what he could to moderate the difficulties involving Austria and Denmark over Schleswig-Holstein and the great powers of the Crimea. Burrett lobbied tirelessly and at remarkably high levels for his peace proposals. In 1849, he urged on Alexis de Tocqueville, then the French foreign minister, the cause of peace. The author of Democracy in America responded favorably, but although personally his sympathies were with all efforts to accomplish such a desirable end, he feared that its attainment was far distant. Much less satisfying were Burrett's meetings with the Germans. In 1854, Burrett even had an audience at the White House with Franklin Pierce. The president and Burrett, it seemed, were of quite the same persuasion. How even, however, even as Pierce and Burrett spoke, this phase of the American movement for international courts was coming to an end. Undermining the cause of Burris and the other American peace advocates was the problem of American slavery and the political battles about it that would lead to the Civil War. It was, if you will, the tragic flaw of the early American peace movement that the crusader for world peace was often the same person as the crusader for the abolition of slavery. Ultimately, the struggle to abolish slavery in America meant war between the states. If slavery were an injustice and wrong, what should the Christian peace advocate do about it? Were there times when violence, even war, might be justified to eradicate a great evil? As the Civil War approached, Burrett and the other Christian peace reformers lost support throughout the North as the use of force to eradicate slavery began to be seen by many as a necessary evil. In 1856, William Lloyd Garrison argued, quote, peace or war is a secondary consideration. Slavery must be conquered peacefully if we can, forcibly if we must, end quote. When in April 1861, the Civil War engulfed the nation, Burrett and the other American peace advocates found themselves isolated from the very public opinion in which they so believed. In January 1862, Burrett wrote to his English friend Edmund Fry, complaining that war fever in America had cut off his revenues from peace lecturing. Burrett was despondent and even a bit fearful. In a few months, Burrett abandoned war-torn, England for, uh, war-torn America for England. He would live long enough to see peace restored in the United States and to begin again his advocacy of international law. He was, in fact, one of the founders of the International Law Association in 1872. Thanks to Burrett and his predecessors, Dodge, Worcester, and Ladd, the plans for an international court had been drawn durably enough that they survived the conflagration of the Civil War. They would reemerge in a few short years when in 1871-72, the United States and the United Kingdom turned to arbitration over the Alabama to avert what might have been an Anglo-American war over British conduct during the Civil War. The Alabama arbitration in Geneva was probably the high point for international law in the 19th century. The importance of the religious utopians who flourished between 1815 and 1860 is easily missed nowadays when the international law enterprise is so legal and so professional. However, the impact of religious optimism was crucial in contributing to a social climate in 19th century America where there was general agreement among so many Americans that the law of nations was fundamentally a good thing. 
The utopian ambitions of Dodge, Worcester, Ladd, and Burrett fashioned an intellectual context that deeply influenced influential American leaders later in the 19th and then in the 20th centuries. These leaders helped create the modern international court and the United Nations. For Americans like Elihu Root, James Brown Scott, William Howard Taft, and Woodrow Wilson, international law was seen as right for religious and moral reasons, as well as for reasons of politics and their profession. Thank you very much.